Ko au he tangata moimoia. I am a dreamer. Enga mana ingare o himihiti nei ki a kaitakatoa no mai hoki mai ano ki te hotaka nei atahika ko marae rakrakua ho. And I'm Justine Murray, and you're with Te Ahika, a weekly dose of issues from a Māori perspective here on Radio New Zealand National. Justine was in Tauranga Moana recently and got up close and personal with the kids of Room 11 and 13, kia ora kids, at Arataki Primary School who were hosting Tommy Wilson. Or Tommy Kapai. And yep, not only is Tommy one motivational guy, he's written 32 children's books. But before all that, he worked as a professional butler with some of the world's biggest names in showbiz. All I had to do was not talk about the Beatles. All George wanted to talk about was growing up in a family of 11 kids. He wanted to talk about the All Blacks, Maori culture, all the stuff that I want to talk to you about. And all I had to do was make George smile. So it was a cool job. So I told my mum when I wrote a letter, I said, Mum, one day I'm chasing cockroaches at the shadow. And the next day I'm jamming with the Beatles. Tommy Wilson, he's up a little later in the programme. In Te Ao Māori, the Māori world, the ability to host or look after one's visitors is one way of measuring mana. And one way of doing that is by feeding them. So if you happen to be an iwi or a hapu that lives near the bush or the sea, your ability to feed your manuhiri is increased because you have access to all that readily available kai. Kind of like a natural supermarket. For the people of Wairua Pa, whose boundaries rest near Te Roto or Wairua, that's Lake Forsyth on Banks Peninsula, their ability to feed people tuna or eels was legendary. Note that was, because slowly over time and a generation, that's changed. Komatua John Panido and Naomi Bunker remember a time in the 1940s and the 1950s when tuna was so abundant, they literally covered roads whenever the water from the lake rose, and it wasn't unusual to see them crawling on the curbside. That's all next week. This week, how the hapu, irakehu and wairua pā got its name. Ko mako te ingo te farenei. Mm. So where does that name come from, Mako? He was one of the uh, chiefs that came down here and settled here. Um, so he came down from? He came down from the East Coast, but he was Naitau. And, uh, of course, um, when he came down first, they were sort of up at uh, Omaka, up in Blenheim. Mm. And that's when the, uh, the two rascals that wandered down here earlier. You remember their names? Uh, Kaiapu Tamakino. Oh, yeah. And, and when they, they reached uh, Omaka, they, they met up with all these uh, rangatera naitau uh-huh. and um, explained what was down here and uh, told them about Lake Yarrasmere or Waiora, as they call it down here, Waiora, uh, full of fish, uh, eels, uh, and then they talked about Waiora, the Roto Wairewa, and how it was full of fish, shellfish too, actually. And uh, yeah, and so that's when Mako said, uh, put the tapa tapa on it, or Otawiri, he called the place, because of the, it was. Otawiri. Otawiri. Yeah, because of the, the rippling of the water. Because mm, it was so abundant with kai. Yeah, yeah that's right.
John Panido, Naomi Bunker and Yayan Cranwell join us later in the show. And that's before we tie it all up with a waiata from Maitreya, one of the finalists of the Mayoha Award in this year's APRA Silver Scroll Music Awards. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justin Murray and you're listening to Te Ahika. Jacob Tahitahi reckons occupational therapy just may be the closest health discipline to hauora Māori. That is, it incorporates values similar to Māori beliefs around health care. Anatapiata finds out more. Hakopa Tahitahi, na no pākriya hau. No fia tera. What's that? Tataki walk with. Sorry, in English. Close to walk with. North of Auckland, not North Auckland. You're an occupational therapist. Yeah. How many Māori occupational therapists are there? There's very, very few. I think something like two uh, percent of all occupational therapists in New Zealand are Māori. So it's yeah, there's hardly any in New Zealand. How come you're here in Wellington? I, I come here. I mean, I've been coming down here to um, help develop a, a strategy to get Māori into occupational therapy. Um, and I'm here for the launch today. Why would Māori want to get into occupational therapy? Uh, that's the good question right there. Um, the best thing that I can say about that is um, occupational therapy is the profession that's the closest, I believe, to how Māori, um, how Māori think about the world. Um, we, can, we, we can work with people at home, we can work with people in the community, and we use what people, we can use traditional um, activities to help people recover. We, we're good at connecting people, relationships. What is occupational therapy? Uh, occupational therapy, it's a bit of an art of, of being able to work with people and get to know them and, and, and in that way get to know about their past but get to know about their desires for the future and work with them in a way that they want you to work with them. So you can, I mean, if it requires, if they've been isolated for a long time in the community and they're Māori, trying to get them out to pick, pick kina or go getting seafood. And I mean, some people outside might look at that and say, well, what sort of therapy is that? Well, the thing is, you've got them outside of their house to go and do that so that you've started the journey. I mean, it's using, you can use either t- traditional activities or you can be quite creative about it. But we work we work very closely. At the, at the core of our um, model of occupational therapy, the core, which is different from another, a lot of professions, is spirituality. And that's, that's quite different to another. That's, that's actually at the core of our practice. Yeah. That's definitely the old Māori. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think that's what differentiates us from any other profession. I thought it was when you go to hospital and then you, get, you, you, know, you have an injury and then they help you fix it. Well, there's that part of it. I mean, the other thing, I mean, if you're looking at a career, is we cross into, um, we, we work in mental health as well as we work in hospitals, we work in private practices as well. So we're dealing with everyday things from 
OTs do things like they'll assess your home if you need wheelchair access. If you're in palliative care and someone's passing away, we do all the equipment side of it, looking at the mattresses and all the equipment to get people in and out of the bars. But on the other side of it, we can work with people to look at their lives and engage them in activities like in mental health, take them fishing like I do. Or for some, I do um, assessments of workplaces for people. This is in private business, like I did a guy, Tamoko, and just looking at he's getting repetitive back injury from working in an incorrect way. Um, so all the positioning. So we work right across the board from uh, through, yeah, as plus as some are working in the... Um, World Health Organisation working over in Africa, working with communities to get them back through abuse and all those sorts of things as well. With the aim of? With the aim of them connecting to... Our, our main thing is making life meaningful, yeah, engaging people in meaningfulness. A lot of people, when they've, when they've been through something... Either they've lost the ability through disability, physical disability to reconnect and find any meaning out of life. So what we've got the opportunity to do is we can modify their car and modify their house so they can live independently still in that situation. Or similarly in mental health, what we can do is we can work with them to gradually work on a program that introduces them into something and then slowly, slowly and gradually by working with them you know, hands-on, we can help them in their recovery. So what are you suggesting in your book, Te Manga Whakawara Accelerated Māori Occupational Therapy Workforce Development? What are you suggesting in there? Well, I think we're suggesting that um, one of the things is that there's not enough Māori occupational therapists and because of the unique way that we work, there's an opportunity and a need for occupational therapists to be in health. Um, I think it recognises that we fit um, very well with um, with working with Māori in particular and um, we're not as clinical as some professions as well so it's a bit different. Are the answers for Māori suitable answers for Pākehā? I think, they're, I think they're, they are suitable because I guess if you look at the concept we've got a net in our strategy and one of the things that we recognise is that we're all interconnected and irrespective of whether you're Māori or not, we're still in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and we've got a we've got a connectedness through history, and, and we've still got a lot of. I think what people haven't realised is that there's values in all cultures, but we have a unique situation here. And I think you know, if you're in New Zealand environment, we can offer something. So, if fishing works for Māori, would it work for Pākehā? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, I mean, not, not to highlight the point too much, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, Pākehā occupational therapists out there. We definitely need Māori to give some balance to that picture and uh, offer something different. What's the response been from the um, professional board to your um, strategy here? Yeah, I, I mean, we had the uh, New Zealand Association of Occupational Therapists here today who have... Um, who have acknowledged their commitment to the strategy. Um, we're now going to, and, and the feedback that we've got from the various stakeholders, including the schools and the board, and that have been very positive. Now that we've got the strategy, now we can, now we've got to get the momentum going, and that's part of why it's the accelerated strategy. So um, yeah, that's what we're working towards. Oh, we'll get on with it then. <laughs> Kia ora.
Indeed. Ana Tapiata talking with occupational therapist Jacob Tahitahi. Head to our website radioNZ.co.nz forward slash the Aika to learn more about the Umanga Fakura, how the government hopes to increase Māori in the occupational therapy workforce. <laughs> Tommy Wilson has led a pretty colourful life. Raised in Tauranga, he started off in the hospitality industry before he became a professional butler. Which led to him travelling the world and picking up A-list celebrity employers like the late George Harrison, actress Nicole Kidman, that's post-Tom Cruise, and the Aga Khan, yes, the famous horse-breeding whānau, Aga Khan. And with all that luxury lifestyle around him, he fell into some of the more unsavoury aspects of it. Ten years ago, he returned back to the Hokainga in Tauranga, drug-free, smoke-free, and started writing kids' books under the pseudonym Tommy Kapai. Creating memorable characters like Kapai the Kiwi and the Kazi's Kids. Ah, ko Tommy Kapai tenei, uh, Pirirako Natiranganui, from the beautiful place of Tupuna, the best place on the planet. Magician. Yeah, I'm an author. Uh, yeah, that's been an author for 18 years. 32 publications so far. Quarter of a million words in there. Halfway. I want to get half a million words left behind before I leave the planet. Come from a family of 11 kids here in, in Tauranga. I grew up in Amano. Uh, wrote my first poem when I was nine. Was accused of having it uh, copied, uh, and that, that that sparked me to uh, to really wanting to be a writer because my teacher kicked me out of the class because he said the poem I wrote for my uh, for my father. Yeah, no, nah, he said I copied it, and uh, and ironically, my pen name, which is Uncle Anzac, is in honour of my uncle Heaney Heaney Blewett, who my dad gave that poem to when he stood up on the bar at the Mount RSA and read my first poem out when I was nine years old. So hence my pen name on Kapoi de Kiwi is, is Uncle Anzac. Uh, uncle after my uncle Henny Blewett, who read my poem out, and Anzac after my dad, who, who fought in this ugly thing called a war. Waiting on three people still talking. Good listening. Thank you. Um, Brody, are you part of this group? You need to be listening then, please. Hands down. Our guest today is very special. I told my class this morning because he wrote all of those fantastic car pie books. He's also related to some of our teachers from here as well, to um, Fire Sharon. And um, this is Mr. Tommy Wilson. Do you want the children to call you Car Pie Tommy? Tommy Car Pie. Or cool. Tommy Car Pie? That's all good. Great. Oh. Morena Tamariki Ma. Guess who I saw this morning? Who? Everyone I looked at. Who's not from Who's not from New Zealand? Who's not from Where are you from, honey? Tonga. Tonga. How do you say hello in Tonga? Molalele. Cha, That sounds cool. Where are you from, honey? Taiwan. Taiwan. How do you say hello in Taiwanese? Ni hao. Cha. Anybody else not from New Zealand? All you fellows are from New Zealand. Who's from a marae? Cha. Where's your marae? Banga tapu. Yeah. Do you know where your What your You know what your hapu is or your iwi? Are you Naitirangi? Or are you Natirangi Nui? Are you Papaka? Yeah, Papaka. Cool to the max. Where are you from, honey? Um, Waikari. Yeah, Waikari. Matapi to the max. 
Justine, this is Justine. She's from Matapini too, but she works with Radio New Zealand and she's doing some programs about uh, new ways and uh, Māori programs. So that's why she's pointing that thing at me, okay? Where are you from? Papamoa. Where? Masterton. Masterton. What's the Nati Rokawa down that way? Yep. Taranaki. Yeah, do you know the tribe down there, bro? That's what I cover down there too with the feathers, eh, bro? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to just tell you a little bit how I grew up with 11 kids in our family. Anybody got 11 kids? More? Have you got 11 kids in your family? You got a thousand? Whoa! Your dad must have known my dad. Hey, where, where you, how many kids in your family? 14. Are you Catholics? <laughs> what happened in your family? 23. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit about growing up in my family and how I got to writing stories and then how I went around the world five times and lived in 33 countries and then I ended back in the place where I live now, which is Tipuna. I leave the kids with basic messages that are, that are you know, we tend to bombard our kids. There are other, other organisations that come into our schools and they teach our kids about 40 things in half an hour and then they leave for another year. Well, that just goes with them, bro. You've got to leave them something to hold on to, tangibles. You know, and I leave the kids with four or five tangibles and when I meet them down the street, they, they, they still remember those things, so I think that's, that's the key. And again, also leaving them with something that ignites that spark that they want to read. Don't matter if it's the best bits. Take it home and read it with your dad, you know. I always said if you drew pictures to ten guitars, if they can't read, they can sing that song. So on one page, you have a picture of a fellow with ten guitars. I have a band of men. Next page, and all they do is play for me. Next page, dance, dance, dance. And then dad can sit down and sit on the end of the bed. And that's the magic, bro. When you read to your kid at night, you'll never have a laptop sitting on the end of the bed. It's when mum and dad sit down and have that magic quarter of an hour, read their tamariki, a story. That's what they remember for the rest of their life. And that sparks, that sparks the need to want to read. For me, it's, it's, it's everything. You know, Stephen Tyndall, who was a pretty amazing man, he said the best thing you can spend on your kids is time. You know, if you want to invest in your kids, don't buy them a new bike or a new PlayStation or a new, you know, season's pass to see Dragon Ball Z. Buy them 15 minutes of your time every night and read to them because... That's the best investment we can make in our kids. My little girl's four and a half. She sits down with me. I write my column. She sits next to me. She's writing her column. You know, she's got her ABC down. She's not five yet. But, you know, they, they soak up their knowledge, bro. And you just give them the excuse to soak up knowledge. And by reading and sharing, you know, it's that sharing magic. Yeah, I, I created and wrote the first six of Kapai the Kiwi. Uh, unfortunately, down the line, there was all sorts of copyright. And uh, when the... Uh, when the ugly head of a checkbook uh, raises its eyes, uh, I don't have the copyright of Kapoi anymore. But no, Kapoi was my opening bat. But since then, I've done a, a series in South Africa, China, uh, in Australia, and I've finished Kazis. And my recent project was Scoop and Scribe, which I did with the APN newspapers, New Zealand Herald. And that got into 750,000 kids' homes, so I was very happy with that. And that's the name of the game, getting it into their homes so mum and dad can sit down with their kids and read. There's Kazis. Uh, you know, Cuzzies is all about the, uh, the pie family, not the mince and cheese pie. No, the pie, P-A-I. There's half pie. There's puku pie, named after me, of course. There's koro pie. There's cutie pie. There's little pie. And everything is car pie. So that's the Cuzzies, Cuz. So that's, yeah, that's one series. You know, just backyard characters that our people can identify with. You know, then I've just finished Scoop and Scribe, which is, you know, Scoop after um, uh, he gets the stories. And Scribe after how many dudes, you know, can roll like this? Not many, if any. I don't know, many, uh-huh. So those are the two that I've been doing with the New Zealand Herald. And the last one we, I just finished was Matariki, teaching the, teaching the kids about Matariki. But again, in a format that's funky, that's local and it's cool, you know, and not lots of scary tongues. The old days of, you know, Maui fishing the South Island up with a bit of baleen twine, the kids ain't buying in anymore, bro. Aren't they? No. That's what I was born 
I know you were, but you know you didn't have mass media. You went bombarded with everything that's instant gratification. You know, so you've got to come up with that now. That's why our kids are turning to a, 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 a music and a culture out of New York because it's fast and furious. And we have to match that with funky and way cool and local here. So they look at, you know, I've seen some most beautiful books done with the most amazing drawings, but they're pieces of art. They're not actually pieces of educational information. So that's what I've learned in my 18 years, and I've done every school. Now I've been to school here about half a dozen times. I do two schools a week. I, I, I've got a reasonable handle on what ignites the kids. It has to be low. It has to be cool. So that's what was important now, family. Fuck it all up. Crouch and hold. Engage. That was the rule in our place. So every night at our place, we would have a talent quest to do the dishes. Everybody came to our place. We lived in Macville Road by Amano School. And everybody came to our place, you can ask questions at the end, bro. Everybody came to our place because it was a tourist attraction. They liked coming to our house because there was lots of kai, there was lots of singing, there was lots of laughter, but there was no violence. And that was really, really cool. And it must have worked because I'm 54 years old and I've never been in a fight in my life. I've never hit anyone and no one's ever hit me. Only on the rugby field. Probably against your brother. <laughs> But it's cool. I want to go all the way through life without ever hurting someone. Because it's dumb to hurt somebody else. My dad my dad knew that. So that's what we did. And, and at night we had to do dishes. And dishes for 11 kids was a lot of dishes. So if you told a song, or you told a story, or did a skit, you didn't have to do the dishes. So that's where, we, that's where I learned to start telling stories. But some people call them tittles. Some people call them embroidering the truth. But some people call them just sharing stories. So when I left school, guess what I got a job as? <coughs> Oh. No. Carl. Yo. Carl. Oh, Carl. Hmm? I got a job as a dishwasher. Oh. <laughs> no. I went to Mount Ruapehu and I got a job. Who knows where Mount Ruapehu is? What do they do there, bro? Oh, it's full of ash. Yeah. There's something else people do there in the winter. Ruapehu. Oh, Yo. Snow. Snow. What do they do? Go snowing. Go snowing. Yeah, I've been snowing. Uh, yeah. Snow skiing. Yeah, bro. Yeah. So that was cool. I use. It's mean down there. So I lived there for three years. It was the coolest, coolest job. I loved it. I just did dishes for 300 people and I got paid for it. And I thought, this is so cool. And I rang up mum, I said, I got the mean job, mum. I get to eat all this fancy kai that comes back off the plate and they pay me for what I was doing at home and I never got paid for. So I had this cool job washing dishes. And after a while I learned how to be a bar manager, then a restaurant manager, and then I went overseas and I became a butler. Who knows what a butler is? Yo. A servant. Yeah, he looks after people, eh? And that's what I did. I became a butler looking, looking after people. And the first fellow I worked for was a man called George Harrison. He was like, anybody, you, you fellas heard of George Harrison? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> key. You know who George Harrison is? Hori Harrison. He doesn't have much pee. Anybody know who George Harrison is? Who was he, Fire? He was a beetle. You fellow heard of the band called Beatles? Oh, yeah. Well, you probably heard your dad playing the jingle jacket to the mate. Yeah. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Yeah, that was the Beatles. And it was mean. And when I worked for him, you know what? All I had to do was not talk about the Beatles. All George wanted to talk about was growing up in a family of 11 kids. He wanted to talk about the All Blacks, Maori culture, all the stuff that I want to talk to you about. And all I had to do was make George smile. So it was a cool job. So I told my mum when I wrote a letter, I said, Mum, one day I'm chasing cockroaches at the shadow, and the next day I'm jamming with the Beatles. 
all because I make people smile. It was a cool job. And then I worked for a lady called Nicole Kidman. You heard of her? She's an actress. She's a ginger. She wasn't married to Tom Cruise in those days. You heard of her? She's a really, really nice lady. And the same thing, all I had to do was make Nicole smile. Then I worked, when I worked for Elton John, sometimes he would wear a wedding dress. And he was a man. Oh, what's up with that? Some strange fellas out there. And I worked for lots and lots of people, rich, rich and famous people. The Queen, Queen not that big Queen, Queen Beatrice of the Netherlands. And when I worked for His Royal Highness, the Aga Khan, all of us had to be like this, seven of us standing straight with white gloves on. And everyone had to go, yes, Your Royal Highness. No, Your Royal Highness. I'm a Royal Highness. You're a Royal Highness. I'm a Royal Highness. You're a Royal Highness. No, no, it's a song. <laughs> and guess what everyone else, everyone else call him Your Royal Highness. And I was allowed to call him Mate. Why? Because I made him smile. Yeah. And his little son, Crown Prince, everybody had to call him Your Royal Highness Crown Prince. Guess what I was allowed to call him? Mate. Bro. <laughs> Why? Because I made him that was a cool job. And so that's what I did. I went all these countries. I went to 33 countries. So I worked for very, very wealthy people. One, the last fellow I worked for, you know, he turned over 135 billion last year. A very, very wealthy man, but he was very, very unhappy. And I made a point uh, one day to say, well, I can't, I don't want to own the world. What can I do to help save it? And all I was good at was washing dishes, 11 kids, of course, and writing, writing poems and books. So I thought I would, ed education to me is the answer for every problem we see, whether it's health, whether it's uh, literacy, whether it's uh, drugs, uh, whether it's violence, you know, the, 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 the food chain of, of, of it all is education. That is the answer. So for me, you've got to be able to teach the kids to read. If you, they fall through the cracks when they're young and they can't read, it's going to get harder and harder for them. And unfortunately, a lot of our tamariki can't read. But then we've got to give them something exciting to read, you know. As I said to you before, there ain't no Barney going dum-de-doo outside our backyard. There ain't no Teletubbies and there ain't no bananas and no pyjamas. My dad went to this thing called a war. Who reckons wars are dumb? No. Same. Wars are dumb, bro. <laughs> my dad went to this war for three years. And he was in this war for three years and nobody wrote my dad a letter. My dad was brought up as a street kid by Uncle Scrim, so he had no whanau. And so he was in the war for three years and he was only a young boy, 17. He lied about his age. Scared ass because people were getting killed all around him and his mates were getting letters and he got no letters. So when my dad came home, he promised himself two things. First, he was never going to be alone again. So he had 11 kids. <laughs> and I was one of them, so that was cool. The second thing my dad said, there was going to be no violence in our family. My dad had seen enough violence in the war to last him a lifetime. So we were brought up with this thing called hard case humour. Who knows what hard case humour is about? <coughs> Who knows what this fella here is about? Who's this fella? My dad. Who is it, Billy T. James. Billy T. James. He was the great communicator using humour as a teaching tool. And that's what I want to teach to you today about how humour is the most powerful weapon on the planet. Well, they, they need to be edutained. You know, you have to have both of those packages. Yeah, that's my hybrid word. You know, you can educate uh, by entertaining. And, of course, I always carry my picture of my bro, Billy T., with me, as I've got here today. I always put him up in the class. He was the master communicator. He communicated through humour. And so I always put Billy up there. And I tell the kids, if I can't make them laugh, I'm going home. I've never met a Māori that ain't hard case. And if you're reading something that's got a relevance, and hopefully what I write is relevance embroidered in humour, um, that, that ignites the reader. And if the reader's ignited, that flows down. It downloads to the tamariki. You know? And it's as simple as that. So it's not going to happen if you're reading something about bananas and pyjamas or Barney and Teletubby, but it just might happen if you're reading something that's a bit more low-cool. You know, so, and everyone can write a local story 
Everyone can write a story. You know, you've got characters in your life that are hard case. Write your own stories. You don't need my stuff. You can use my stuff as, a, as an entree, but everyone should write their own story. Around Māori communities, down every road in the Marae, there's always you know, Auntie Billy and Bonky Boy and Nanny Queenie and Cuzzy Guzzy and... Use those characters and just make up a story about when you used to go eeling or when you used to hotwire your neighbour's Mark 1 and pinch it or, you know, or when you used to look at Dad's best bet and work out where he had his money. Whatever. You know, make up your own stories and it just ignites the spark in kids. That's all we have to do. Become storytellers. Uh, a very, very famous man said, we are leaving the age of information and we are leading into the age of in, uh, imagination. And the parents and the, and the CEOs and the companies that can tell stories and have stories behind them. They're the ones that are going to succeed. So all we've got to do is just tell our kids a story. Ed had one rule, and our rule was we had to go out and make 10, kids, 10 people laugh a day. That's the rule, every day. And so now I'm, I try and do 20 kids a day. And so when I go to the checkout operator out of Bethlehem, and I can't make her smile, I go around again. Because she's been listening to people moan all day about prices, and you say something nice to her and she smiles, and it's cool. You try it tomorrow when you wake up in the morning and you wake up and you go, morning, mum, you are the chicky bomb bomb, you are the cool as you are, way cool, mum. And she's going to go, aye? But she will laugh. You try it with your dad or your kuro and you go, dad, kuro, you the meanest bro. You are. And he's going to go, aye? And he will laugh. And if you've got a puppy dog or a cat or something, and you go, good morning, puppy dog, I really love you, you are cool. And the puppy dog and go, what? See, see, I made all you fellas laugh. I can go home now. See you fellas later. <laughs> Someone told me I got a gift that was pretty cool, and I said, "What am I going to do with my gift, Miss?" She said, "If you use your gift, Tommy, you can do whatever you want in this world." And I went, "Wow!" Because my dad had also told me, "Now, if you make ten people smile, you'll do whatever you want in this world." So I said to her, "Will I travel with my gift, Miss?" She said, "Yep." And I said, "Will I meet rich and famous people with my gift, Miss?" She said, "Yep." And I said, will I be rich and famous too with my gift, miss? And she said, yep. But so far, only two of those three things have come true. <laughs> and I'm in no hurry. I'm rich, you know. I've got a beautiful family. I've got people that love me. I'm drug and alcohol free. I'm writing a mad column. I'm smelling the roses and, and singing with the birds. You know, it's life is a garden. This is a true story about this lady here. Her name was Princess Diana. And she, she, she died. She died probably when you fellas went... Yeah, 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 she died in a car crash. The paparazzi were chasing. Yeah, you fellas was onto it. And it was really sad when she died. Everyone was crying. Do you remember when she died? Yeah, remember, remember. Remember? Yeah, yeah. And it was like everyone was having a major tangy. When she died, we thought, wow, we'd like to write something about it, but you can't really do a children's story about someone dying. But then we found this little picture here in the Herald the day Princess Diana died, and there was this girl here called Susan Tane. And she was the head prefect of Queen Vic School, and she met Princess Diana, and we thought, wow, if we could find her, we could interview her, and then find out what it was like to meet a real princess. So we found her, and she worked in a bank in Wellington. So we found her, we interviewed her, and we wrote this book. And then we took this book to Prince William and Prince Harry, her boys, in Eton, over in, over in England. And they liked this book. They said it was the best book written about their mum because it was true. Because a lot of stuff that was written about their mum wasn't true. So I'm going to read this story, Okay. Very good audience. Crutch and hold. <laughs> Thomas, Meta and Mark, they were getting ready for bed. When I grew up, Thomas said... For me, we writer. need to write or learn to write in a way that engages our audience, not in a way that we think is the right way to write. Um, you know, so I think a lot of our, our Māori stuff is great history lessons, 
But as far as using them as tools to engage for kids to want to learn to write and read, I think we've got some areas we, we, can, we can perform in better. Um, but, it, you know, everyone comes up to me and they say, what do you do, bro? And I say, I write children's books. And they always say to me, wow, I've always wanted to write a children's book. And I say, wow, you should try it. But, bro, it ain't easy. It's actually a specialised field to write a good children's book, then get it published, and then hopefully watching that book weave its magic. It's a specialised field, but us as Māoris, we were born as storytellers. And I keep telling people, just use the characters in your own backyard. Use your story, and that way it'll work. You know, We don't need stuff from overseas. We don't need Hollywood. We've got our stories in our own backyard, but they need to be put in a context that's low cool. Every day I find a new story, you know, as in Cuzzy's in the Motohor Shark. You know, that's based on a true story where my koro used to go and blow up and fish in the Tauranga Harbour with a dynamite. And, and one day this, this, this mako came and barged their boat. And, you know, and it was like, it was like Tangaroa or the Kaitiaki saying, hey, don't take more than you need. So I turned that around and wrote the first, you know, Cuzzy's book, which now it's wonderful because the, Brotown, the people that did Brotown are looking at Cuzzy's to do that as a series for TV3 because it's backyard stories spun into a modern day context. So there are all the Ghani stories that have been done and the Nanny Queenie and the Kōrō, but you have to give them a modern day context. You know, that's that's the way I feel. Because as I said, we're up against the mass media, and if it doesn't fly and it ain't funky, kids are not going to even pick it up. Kia ora, Tommy Wilson or Tommy Kapai, as the kids know him, with the kids of Arataki Primary School in Tauranga Moana. Tommy writes the Kazi series of kids' books. At our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika, there's photos and more info about him. On your way from Christchurch to Akaroa, past Belfast, and heading towards Banks Peninsula, there's a settlement you pass through called Little River. Well, it's actually called Wairiwa, and that's where Wairiwa Pa is. A few months ago, I visited Wairiwa Pa on what felt like the coldest day in winter, where I met with Hapu members John Paniro and Naomi Bunker, who both grew up during the 1930s around Wairiwa. And Yayan Cranwell, you'll be hearing more from him next week. Ko John Panero, Takuima, Mayete, the Motu Nunui, a Wadikori, a Hakwa Tena, a Kutupona, no Taranaki. Oh, me? No. No Waitara, Udunui, Tiatiawa. Kia ora. Kia ora. I'm Naomi Bunker and uh, I was born here and so um, yeah, I've lived here all my life really. If I haven't lived, you know, you know that I've been up to uh, uh, in Christchurch since 1965 but uh, yeah, this is where I was born. Kia ora. Ko te upoko tahumata te mauka, ko okana ta awa, ko wairewa te roto, ko uruao te waka, ko mako te wharitipuna, ko toropuake te wharikai, ko kātiri kehu kāti mako kāiwi, ko kaitahu kāti māmai me waitaha kāiwi. Kia ora. Ko mako te ingo te wharenei. Mm. So where does that name come from, mako? He was one of the uh, chiefs that came down here and settled here. Um, so he came down from. He came down from the east coast, but he was Naitau, and uh, of course, um, when he came down first, they were sort of up at uh, Omaka, up in Blenheim, 
and that's when the, uh, the two rascals that wandered down here earlier, you remember their names? Uh, Kaiapu Tamakino. Oh, yeah. And, and when they, they reached uh, Omaka, they, they met up with all these uh, rangatera naitau uh-huh. and um, explained what was down here and uh, told them about Lake Yellowsmere or Waiora, as they call it down here, Waiora, uh, full of fish, uh, eels, uh, and then they talked about Wairewa, the Roto Wairewa, uh, and how it was full of fish, shellfish too, actually. And uh, yeah, and so that's when Marco said, uh, put the tapa tapa on it, Otawiri, he called the place, because of the, it was. Otawiri. 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 Yeah. Because of the, the rippling of the water? Because mm, it was so abundant with kai. Yeah, yeah that's right. Because mm. uh, uh, those are the motions that fish make aye, aye, when aye. they're feeding and when they're jumping. That's mm. right. And, and so uh, when he came down, he claimed the place by putting his uh, wahika, you know, his, his patu. He buried his patu in the lake. And claim, he claimed the place that way. So is that because there were no people here? Well, I wouldn't say that. And the, the Waitaa were here, the Ngati Māmoi were here, and they had to be sort of asked to move on. Uh, and you know the way they used to do it, eh? And they did it, yeah. <laughs> and, they... They, and they moved on. And um, so he claimed the place, and he actually settled not where we are today, but in the other valley that you see as you come round the lake, uh, where all the rain settles in there. Uh, and what's what, that valley called? Okuti. Or, or, or Kute, I think is uh, the original name, but everybody calls it Okuti now. So, um, yeah, that's where he, he settled uh, because he was right on the shores of the lake and, of course, all the kai was at his, at his feet, if you like. So what time are we talking we're talking about uh, four, fifty years, five hundred years, perhaps. Yeah. So pretty recently. Yep, yep. <laughs> Almost like yesterday, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so when he came down here, did he end up intermarrying? Yes, he uh, he he married. Uh, um, I'm trying to think. Of the Waka Papa, but yeah, he married Toropoaki, and that's the name of the Warikai. And so he, he married Toropoaki, and she comes down the, the one of the main lines of the Naitau people. I mean, Mako also comes down uh, uh, one of the, the the principal Waka Papa lines, but Toropoaki uh, came down through uh, uh, Darangi Wakaputa and Kuri. Uh, and Itakehu, the first Itakehu line. I'm yep. just getting a sense that um, the matriarchal lines here in Naitahu are quite strong, or is it in this particular rohe? They are quite strong. This particular rohe is certainly strong because we have Mako, which came down a very strong line from, if you like, the brother of Itakehu, mm-hmm. and came down that line, and Itakehu came right down to this one here. Uh, there were two Irakehus at that time, uh, and so they've adopted the name of Ngati Irakehu. Yeah, and do you know what they were called before? Uh, ki tōku nei mohi o Ngati Ira. Mako then, of course, 
married and married uh, Toropoaki. Now, Toropoaki's father was Tarangiwa Kaputa, who was the one who laid his, uh, his uh, Rapaki over at Rapaki <laughs> and claimed Rapaki itself. Now, Rapaki. Rapaki. Oh, Rapaki. Aye, Rapaki. And, um, and so when those two married, when Mako and Toropoaki married, it is said that her father settled up here behind this marae, way up on the top of the hill up there, to keep an eye on his <laughs> son-in-law. <laughs> That's what they say. Now, Tarangi Wakaputa was a very, very tall man. From what I can gather, he was well over seven foot tall. So that, that was you know, stretching things a bit. But, um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I think in the, in the um, late 1800s or early 1900s, a skeleton was found up there in a, in a rua, a very deep rua, and apparently it was of a tall, tall person, and at the time they thought it might have been the remains of Tarangi Wakaputa. Uh, the skull was brought down. It was found by a Pākehā. And so he brought the skull down to say, oh, look what I found. I found this skull up there. And, and of course, uh, a lot of the Māoris down here freaked out and they had to take it back. And it was um, Naomi's grandfather who actually took it back and placed it back with the skeleton. And they, they put huge rocks all over the, the rua so that they couldn't be uncovered again. And nobody really knows where it is now, which is probably a good thing. But uh, that was, they believe, the remains of Tarangi Wakapita. So, Nomi, did you grow up hearing those stories? Yes, I did. Right through from, um, from birth. And uh, then when I got married, that sort of tended to go wherever my husband's uh, um, work was, you know, but it was all around the peninsula. And... Um, then my son went to um, uh, work in New Zealand Post and he was 17 and um, so he he did very good. He was always at the top of everything that uh, they should have once a year, uh, quite a heap of people, uh, workers. So anyway, um, in those days you couldn't stay in Christchurch if you had to go out, you know, um, Dunedin, Wellington or somewhere like that. But because how he was in in the line at uh, New Zealand Post, he always stayed down here because he, you know, had the grades to stay down here. Stay here? Mm. Uh, in In Christchurch. And so that was good. And uh, and he was he was shifted away up to uh, Auckland for one year and it lasted for three years, and then they came home and they've they've been home all the time. So um, yeah, so th- and that's why you know we come to go to to town because we just missed having him and him and him wanting new shirts and things like that. So <laughs> we had to go to town. 
<laughs> now, looking, I'm just looking out through the front doors of the Whare Tupuna at the moment, and uh, I'm looking at snow-clad mountains. I mean, would it be fair to say that your people had to be quite hardy? Oh, yes. To live here in this yeah. environment? Yes. Because, you know, the, the cold coming off the lake... Yeah. And the sea's not too far from here yeah, either. And, of course, the frosts, you know, mm. being close to the water, we, we used to have very, very hard frosts here. And as I say, it, it, it just was so cold in the winter and so hot, the opposite in the, in the, the summer. So, um, yes, I, I, I was here, and I started on the right when I was nine years old. And you know how you should start in the back and not the front. And um, so, and I learned just to do the potatoes. But it was the right thing to do, I see now, you know, over all these years. And then mum, uh, I was always with mum, so I was sort of just slowly nurtured by her and trained by her. And I was I was very pleased about that. I didn't know that's where I was heading. <laughs> But um, I was very pleased. and uh, So has a marae always stood here? Yes. Has a pa always stood here? Yes. So and there's always been ahika here then? Yes. <coughs> yeah. So, so we, um, and, you know, we've got to the stage that we are at now and it's really nice and, you know, you had to struggle for years on marais and so we did. But now the women have got the inside and uh, and that's what it's all about, you know. You've got to do the kai and the cleaning and all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, so it's a lovely place. It's lovely to stay here, but I can't sleep here much now. And uh, only if John wants to stay here for a night, if he hasn't finished his work, he wants to finish it. We'll stay the night. And there's no one making a noise or anything to keep me awake. Yeah, all the babies. <laughs> and, <laughs> all the babies. Get the babies out of here. <laughs> but but I, I, I could um, at one stage, you know, come into the ferry and uh, the kids okay. are playing up like anything. And so I get Or your mokos. No, 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 no. The, the cousins. cousins. <laughs> and I used to think, right. And so I get into my bed where the switch was. It was right alongside the switch, and I said, "Right, I'm going to sleep. All right." And they're just always tittering away there. As soon as I turned the light off, that was just gone. They just stopped. <gasps> it was really, really good. But it was the big ones, the elder ones, the older ones that come and made the racket after. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I've had both areas, but I've always been in the kitchen. And, and done right through the through the marae all, all the time since you know when I got older and you sort of do this and then we had we had to cook out on big um, um, swing um, rods. You have a great big fireplace. So if I was to describe that, it looks like a campfire that cowboys yes, have. Yes, and, mm. and you have your kaya pots on it and you yep. swing them out, cook them when they're ready. You take them off, and it was a good way because they kept hot. Still and that's why you often had pots that were blackened by the f- yes. by the fire. Yes, but they were hardy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, it, it was good. Good. Um, I suppose it was good for me that I started from that time. Like for modern thinking, some people they think that 
you, we've always had separate whare for doing things. Uh, I'm just thinking about my own, one of our mm. power up at Manapohatu. Yeah. You know, you always did the kai outside and then the house was for sleeping in. Or, you know, it just had multi-purposes because practically that was the easiest way of doing it. Mm. It's just in the modern age we've now got separ- all these separate yes, structures. Yes. You know, like the whare kai, the whare mate, the whare tūpuna. Yeah. Mm. So, so now I, um, I'll never ever regret having to do what I did do. It's really, really been good. And um, there's my immediate family, and they always come first to me, and Mariah's the second. And um, I'm teaching the girls, you know, what to do and that sort of thing now. You know, to In keep terms it of clean. kawa? Mm? In terms of kawa also? Yeah. yeah. And so um, I've always, because I had to learn the hard way, um, I've always tried to get it easier for the girls. And it's really coming easy all the time. And uh, so... So by girls, are you, you're talking about 50, 60-year-olds? Uh, what are they? In their 30s? 40s. 40s? Yeah, 40s? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. They're in their 40s. Um, the only trouble is we don't have many to do it, so it's a bit hard. But anyway. So do there tend to be more women here than men? Uh, yeah, oh. we let them go. <laughs> I don't think it would, would it, John? Would it, yeah, of course yeah? it does. I don't think there's more. Oh, well, yes, at meetings there could be. But it's getting to be sort of even, but it was always more women than, uh, than men. Like if we had a hui, you'd probably only have three men. Is that because that's just the way the population is of the mm. marae, or is this because of...? No, the population of right. the marae. And Why is that? Well, it's, it's how, the kid, how the kids were born, I suppose, mm. you know. And um, there's a lot of boys at one stage and a lot of girls at the next stage. So, so that's how that sort of happened. The other thing is, though, the men have to go out and work, eh? And in those days, even right into the 1950s, the men would be in the freezing works and just mm. the women left mm. here on the marae. And, and that's yeah. the way it was. When there was a tangi, the men would come to the tangi from the freezing works and um, those were the days too because they would bring sides of lamb, sides of beef, all yes. those straight from work, yeah. you know. Well, that, that was the men's side. Yeah. And we had the farimati uh, in here and the karanga, kaikarangas and things like that and, and still had to have real good tikanga because you can't... In those, those days too, I remember, didn't matter who came, they always brought something. You know, a sack of spuds, a sack mm. of cabbages, and it wasn't just sugar bags, but big sacks of these things. And nowadays, of course, people come empty-handed, and it's and so the, the, the marae now has to go out and get all those things. Yet we remember when people used to bring those things. So. Yeah, it was always uh, the thing that I did, and that was through mum, was that whenever anyone come, you always gave them something to go with. You know, like, like if someone come from south, you give them a reasonable amount of things, and if someone was in Christchurch, you'd probably give them a cup of tea thing or whatever like that, whatever we could manage. And, and you would have been quite rich in Māori terms because of all the fish. With... You would have been quite rich in terms of kai because oh, yes. of all the yes, we were, the, the fish and, and, yeah. and, and then um, it would have been great coming to a hui here. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi Bunker, John Panido, and Yayan Cranwell, Norway to a pa, 
Kia ora koutou. A nei rā, Tommy Wilson nō Ngāti Ranginui, who you heard earlier in the programme with this week's Whakatauki. I guess it is, it's in both languages. I mean, and it's what I, when I used to have a business card and a cell phone, which I don't have anymore, on it, it used to have what my job was. My job was a tangata moi moi I was a professional dreamer. Now, I was told off of being a dreamer when I, was a, when I was a child. Now, the leading marketing companies in the world, you know, you've got the, 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 the top people in the world are saying, we're leaving the information world now. And we're heading right now into the, informa- uh, to the imagination world, the world where you dream and tell stories. This country is based and formed on dreams and stories, so it's our time. It's our time. Kia ora, talofa, it's our time, a special time of day. During Tweekio Te Reo Māori in July, Sam Wicks co-presented the music mix with Maitreya or Jamie Greenslade. Now, that's not unusual because it happens on a number of Radio New Zealand national programmes, but what was cool about this was they co-presented in English and Māori. Like us, Justine. Aira tikatau e hua, like us. And here, Matreya is with his waiata, Waitaha, from the album Close to Home. Which isn't the song shortlisted in this year's Te Maioha category at the Silver Scrolls. That would be Whakakotahi Rangatahi, but we like it anyway. And Ate Waita Whakamutunga, Ko Waitaha Tingua o Te Waiatane. From the cutting room of history, it's less work to be cunning than a visionary. ダタクワクラゴンアティカゴテモアナヌエアキワウスモンリデテセデイディソングデブライバトゥーニングデブライトゥーニングデブライトゥーニングデブライトゥーニングデブライトゥーニングデブライトゥーニングデブライトゥー
Tonto, 